Amen. Uh, there's lots of different stories on humility or being humiliated, and none of them really can come into any comparison in view of what Jesus has done for us. I don't know what's been the most humiliating thing for you, the most humiliating season in your life, or perhaps a, an incident at work, an incident in high school, right? Some people, they have recurring bad dreams of being just completely humiliated, where it's that weird dream where your teeth are falling out as you're talking to someone, right? Some people, they have dreams that they're in a crowd talking, and then out of nowhere, their pants just disappear out all of a sudden and out of nowhere, right? I don't know what's been the most humiliating day for you or season for you. As a parent, I never realized how humiliating it would be, right? How often you're being humbled and humiliated by this little pipsqueak that you brought into the world, right? How often uh, you're there in the middle of the night, you're the one paying the bills, you're the one that has a job, you're the one that has to get up in the morning, and yet someone needs attention in the middle of the night. And who ends up winning? The little eight-pound baby. They, they're the ones that win, right? And you got to stop. You see what's going on. You see how they need help, right? If you've been there as a parent that humiliating day when you're trying to figure out, is this chocolate or is this something else on my hand, right? Those seasons where they're not feeling good and they're throwing up. And as a parent, you come to that point where you'd rather them throw up on you than throw up on the furniture, right? Because you can wash yourself. And, and it's humiliating, and why would a parent go through all this? I don't think we'd go through this with anyone else. We wouldn't want anyone else's questionable chocolate upon us, right? I don't think we'd want anybody else's vomit upon us. Why would a human being subject themselves to such humiliation? And it's just love. It's just love for this little insignificant being that cannot take care of itself cannot clean itself, cannot feed itself, cannot provide for itself. And very similarly, Jesus, he loves us in the same way. And he was willing to humiliate himself in the same way for us. And I pray this morning we would just have our eyes open to how low Jesus humbled himself. And in view of how low he humbled himself, we'll be able to see how highly Jesus has exalted him. And if we're willing to humble ourselves, we get to join in in that ride with the Lord. We get to join in that ride with Jesus. However, if we continue to stick to our pride, there's a far worse end for us. In verse 5 and 6, it tells us, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Again, if you're here and you're already a believer, you're growing, you're in your walk with the Lord. If you leave with anything here this morning, let it be known that we are to have this same mindset of humility in our lives. As Christians, we need to have this same mindset of humility. Being willing to take the lower step. Being willing to take the more humiliating position. Being willing to serve others more than we serve ourselves. This is the mind that Jesus Christ had. And Paul is telling the church of Philippi, a church that was going through lots of division, like much of Christianity is today. He's telling them, you have to have the mind of Christ Jesus. Then in verse 6, it tells us, who being in the form of God. Two words here. The first is being. Being in Jesus' very essence is that he is God. He is God completely. 
It's describing the part of a man which cannot be changed. It is who he was, who he is, and who he is to come. The second part, this form of God, is a form that changes throughout time. A form that changes throughout each and every day, right? Each of us, we have a being, who we are, our very essence, the insides of what makes us tick. But we go through different forms in life. We come into this world as a form of a baby, right? And maybe your baby pictures are cuter than you look right now, or you look a lot cuter, right, than you were as a baby. And as you continue to grow, then you take on the form of a toddler. You begin to learn how to walk. You begin biting people and doing different things like that, right? And that's the form of a toddler, You continue to grow into the form of a teenager. You have to deal with acne and puberty and all that fun season, right? And then we get to the later age where we become the form of a parent, the form of the old man or old woman. And it almost seems like we end this life falling back to the form of a baby all over again. But you're the same person in the inside. You don't change. You have the same mindset, the same idea. You are who you are. And the same is true of Jesus Christ. He is God, but yet he gave up the form of God. He was willing to humble himself, right? It tells us that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with him because he possessed the very nature of God. A few scriptures here, a little bit different than how we usually do Bible study. A lot of scriptures will be up on the screen. But Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it tells us, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That is, Jesus is the express image of God himself. That's why Jesus would tell the disciples, he would tell the Jews, he would tell the Jewish leaders, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. There's no other way to come to the Father except through me. In John chapter 8, Jesus once again finding himself with some difficulty with some of the Pharisees, some of the Jewish leaders. They're arguing with him. And they tell him, hey, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world have you seen Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, right? The father of the Jewish faith. Jesus says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, Jesus, he's always existed He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's outside of time itself. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, a famous portion of Scripture during this Christmas season, it speaks of the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream, comforting him, right? Imagine your fiancé is pregnant, and you're not the father, right? And then she goes on to tell you, don't worry, God is the father of the baby, Right? I think many of us men would be in a big crisis there. And the angel there speaks with Joseph and says, hey, don't worry. She's going to bring forth a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. And in verse 23, it says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Again, this was an answer to prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14, that God himself would descend from heaven and dwell among us, and be with us, and eat with us, and spend time with us. If you would, we could turn to John chapter 1, very important portion of Scripture. And there in John chapter 1, verse 1, John starts off his Gospels in such a different and in such a powerful way. John 1, 
verse 1, it tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. You jump down to verse 14, and it tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, this title, only begotten of the Father, is a title that Jesus is the only one that can cling to. It's a title that only Jesus himself can have. And again, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We can go to Revelation chapter 1. And for many of us, when we think of Jesus, perhaps you have... Jesus in the manger in your minds, right? You could turn to Revelation chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses here. But perhaps during the season, you brought Jesus out of the closet, right? And you laid their little baby Jesus under the Christmas tree. Maybe you had to blow the dust off of him, right? Maybe he has a chipped hand or a chipped foot and you had to get your glue gun to fix him. Uh, maybe you took him out and you put him out in the front lawn. The sun has sort of fried him, but you say, hey, I'll give him another year or two to stick out there, right? Before we get a new baby Jesus. Perhaps for you, you've grown up in religion and your mindset of Jesus Christ is this bloodied and beaten naked man hanging upon a cross. I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but here in Revelation chapter 1, we went through the scripture about two or three weeks ago. And this is the best picture that we have of who Jesus was before he descended and who Jesus is today. Again, I pray, I hope that we can realize the power of who Jesus is. His majesty, his glory, and his honor, and the humility which he had willing to come down and dwell with us. If you would, we'll read together Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the fire, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Again, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is right now. He's no longer hanging upon a cross. He's still not an infant lying in a manger. This is who Jesus is. And this speaks, those long garments speak of a man of high status, of high rank, high authority. He's a man given authority over all of creation, over the entire universe. It speaks of his chest girded with a golden band. This reveals his role to us as our high priest, tending to us, taking care of our spiritual estate. And where is he? He's standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. It's speaking that he's standing in the midst of each and every church. 
trying to minister to them, trying to work with them, trying to serve them, trying to beckon them to come back to him. In verse 14, it says his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. This speaks of his wisdom, his purity, his glory, and his timelessness. Again, a wisdom that this world can never fathom or imagine. A purity that this world cannot, cannot see. A glory above all glories and a timelessness outside of time. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. You see, Jesus can pierce through all that is happening. He sees everything. He sees whatever you're hiding. Whether you're hiding it out of humility, hoping no one sees it and calls it to your attention. Or whether you're hiding it because you're living a lifestyle of sin and you're fearful of who's going to catch you and what's going on. He sees through it all. Do not be fooled. Nothing is hidden in his sight. Sooner or later, everything will be judged by his absolute holiness. His eyes are all searching and all penetrating. Like fire, consuming indignation and judgment will be poured out against sin for all of eternity. And for those of us who are his sons and daughters, it tells us all of our life's work, your 50 years on this world, this 80 years on this world, the 100 years of your life's work will be brought before him. And through his eyes, he's going to see what you've done. And if it was done out of selfish ambition, if it was done out of your own pride, it's going to burn to a crisp. But whatever's done for him will stand there as jewels and gems and gold and stones to give him more glory and honor. Verse 15, it says, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Speaks of his stable judgment upon sin. He's not shaken by sin. He's not easily moved by it. He will show no partiality. All sin will be brought under his fiery judgment. Unless we are humbling ourselves and willing to bring our sin under the shedding of his perfect love. That's the only way that we can live this life. We will either accept his blood and his sacrifice to wash over our sins, or it will be his judgment that will be poured out on us for the rest of eternity in hell. Every evil will be judged. Nothing will be left undone, whether evils that we've committed to other people or evils that have been committed to us. It speaks that his voice is as the sound of many waters, a voice of power and majesty. A voice that will ring through all the noise of this world to pierce our hearts this morning. It's more powerful and deafening than the mightiest waterfall. And yet he chooses to speak to us in a still, small voice. Often telling us, fear not, I'm with you. Fear not. So often that's how he first speaks to someone. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. Friend, do you, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Do you know that still small voice? Do you hear it in the morning asking you, hey, will you sit down with me? Will you open your Bible and spend some time with me? Do you hear that still small voice? Have you heard that loud voice, that powerful voice, warning you not to go somewhere, warning you not to do something, bringing upon his wrath upon our lives? Have you heard his voice? In verse 16, it says, in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. This is the seven messengers to these seven churches. He's holding them in his right hand to care for them, to deal with them, 
with their faithfulness or with their unfaithfulness. He's ready to encourage them. He's also ready to convict them. He's there to give them comfort when they're exhausted of serving him and his people. It says that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This is speaking of the words of Jesus Christ. His words are sharp. His words are true. His words are powerful. Like that of a long sword, of a heavy sword, like Excalibur itself, his word is sharpened to a razor edge and will pierce us to the heart. Yet we get to decide if we're going to use that piercing to humble ourselves or to continue to callous our hearts, to make us more and more prideful to his love and to his grace. His words possess life itself. His words are the ones that spoke life into existence, the words that spoke light into existence, but it will pronounce a powerful judgment upon anyone who stuck their pride against him instead of being willing to humble ourselves and call him Lord of all. To those stuck in their pride, his words will fill their souls with extreme anguish. It says that his countenance was like the shining of the sun in its strength. I don't know, when was the last time you tried staring at the sun? I hope for you adults, it's been a long, long time, right? But maybe for some of the sixth graders, you tried to see how long you could stare at the sun. This speaks of his unclouded power. His glory and his beauty are so majestic, it would be as if you're trying to stare into the face of the sun itself. Again, we read in his right hand, he's holding seven stars, and yet what catches John's attention, what blinds John, is not seven stars in his right hand, but it's the glory of his face. It's the unclouded and unbridled majesty of Jesus Christ. And at this view, at this person, at the persona and the vibes in a sense, right, that Jesus gives off, what does John do? He falls on his face as dead. He falls at the feet of Jesus Christ. John, one of the closest people to Jesus, the one that the Bible says is the disciple whom Jesus loved. When he sees Jesus face to face in his full glory, in his full power, fear is what cripples him. He falls at his feet as dead. And family, each and every one of us, one day we will see him face to face. And all of humanity will have the same feeling. Fear will cripple us. And yet he will answer us in one of two ways. Either as a friend or as a judge. You see, if we're a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, he will reach over to us and tell us, do not be afraid. Peace be still. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my little brother, my little sister. However, if we've continued to deny him, if we've continued to live a life apart from him, if we've continued to live a life apart from the word of God and the Bible, then we will meet him as our judge. And to those, what does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Friend, which voice will you hear from Jesus? Which words will you hear from Jesus? Telling you to fear not or telling you to depart from him, to spend the rest of eternity there in hell. There in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul says, therefore from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Paul says we know nothing of what Jesus looks like. We have no idea of what he really looks like. And I pray that our minds and our hearts as we spend this season of Christmas, as we cry out to Jesus in time of need, you'd have the right idea of who Jesus is. He's not the baby in the manger that you decide when to bring in or bring out. 
He's not the naked man hanging upon the cross, bloodied and bruised. No, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the captain of our salvation. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And as Paul told the church of Philippi, every knee will bow to him. Have you bowed your knee today? We get the choice, we get the option to bow our knees today and spend the rest of eternity in heaven. Or we can stay in our pride and we'll bow our knees in hell for all of eternity. Right? He put his hand upon John and he said, do not be afraid. Jesus comforts him right away and will comfort his sons and daughters right away. Verse 18, he's he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus not merely is living, but he possesses life itself. Life for all of eternity, for all of the universe flows out of Jesus Christ. It says that he has the keys, speaking of his authority, and he's the one who possesses the authority over hell and death itself. Oftentimes we think Satan is the Lord of hell. The devil's the one that's running hell and doing what he pleases with it. Friend, no. Jesus is the Lord over hell. He has authority over hell itself, and he has authority over death itself, and he also has authority over sin itself. And Jesus can make anyone free here this morning from sin, from death, and from hell itself. We just have to humble ourselves and come to him. If not, we will taste of all three of those difficult things. Back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, again, this is who Jesus is. In verse 6, it tells us that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That being said, it's he did not consider it something to be grasped, something to hold on to, something to try to cling to, because this is who he already was and is. He is God. I don't know if you've ever made you know, a big friendship, someone that you think is pretty high up there, and you think, oh, I hope I don't blow this, right? If you got the girl of your dreams to finally go out with you, and you think, man, I really don't want to blow this, right? You're trying to grasp this. You're trying to hold on to it. And Jesus, he could let go of it freely. Because it was who he is and was and is to come. In verse 7 it says, but he made himself of no reputation. Maybe your Bible says he emptied himself. And this is the true meaning of this. He emptied himself. What did Jesus empty himself of? It's not of his deity. It's not the power of God himself. But he emptied himself of his divine privileges. He emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his own will to be submitted to the will of the Father. In the Greek, that emptying himself is literally turning the cup upside down. It's to not leave a single drop within it. And again, this is the humility of Jesus Christ. I was listening to a teaching, and it's so true. If you really want to learn someone's character, you give them some privileges. And then you sort of sit back and see how they deal with those privileges. I think each of us, we've been there as kids, right? Your parents, they give you the keys to the car, and within a week, they're, yeah, give me the keys, right? Your parents give you a cell phone. Your parents give you extra access, extra freedoms. Hey, your curfew's an hour later, and a couple of days later, hey, we're going to have to cut back on that, right? Your character wasn't ready for the privileges. But yet Jesus, with his divine privileges, he uses them to empty them out. He uses them to show his great humility. He emptied himself of all his glory. In John 17, verse 5, he's praying to God the Father. And he says, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That word glory is the most glorious condition, the most exalted state. And this is where Jesus was before he came down to heaven. And when he came down from heaven to earth, did he have glory? Was he super handsome, right? Was he voted most handsome man in Israel, right? No, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 and 3 tells us, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root on dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. When Jesus came down from heaven, he wasn't even handsome. He didn't even stick out of a crowd. He wasn't voted most handsome and in his high school, right? Best looks. That's not who he was. You would walk by him and pay no attention to him. Isaiah tells us what? We despised him. We hid our faces from him. For a brief moment in time there in his earthly life and ministry, he allowed his unclouded glory to shine on three of his disciples. There in Matthew 17, verse 2, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it, it tells us that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And upon this instance, all three of the disciples fell on their faces, in verse 6, and were greatly afraid. And Jesus comes to them, he touches them and says, Arise and do not be afraid. Again, family, friend, will you hear those words when we get out of this life and into the next? He was and is equal to God, yet he gave up his own will to be submitted to the will of the Father. I think for many of us as Americans, right, we want to cling to our will. We want to cling to our freedoms, which it's good and it's important. But let us know that Jesus gave up his will. Jesus was willing to love us so much that he gave up his rights. In John 6, verse 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 14, verse 28, Jesus says, My father is greater than I. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus is pleading, falling on his face, praying to God the Father. And he says, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, believer here, do you have the mind of Jesus Christ? Are you telling the Lord, Lord, not my will, not my desires, not my rights, but Lord, your will be done. It tells us that he took on the form of a bondservant back in Philippians chapter 2. And he came in the likeness of men. This form of a bondservant. He was in the form of God. His essence is God. He was in the form of God. Then he laid that down and he took instead the form of a bondservant. That word bondservant is not really found in the Greek. It's literally the word slave. He went from God to taking on the form of a slave. Are we willing to be a slave to God? No matter what he asks of us. No matter what he asks us to give up. Or are we acting as the Lord of our lives? And let it be known, either he is Lord of all, or he's not the Lord at all of our lives. Does Jesus own every aspect of your life, or are you trying to hold back certain kingdoms away from him? 
He took on the form of a slave. He was the servant of the Lord. He is the slave of God himself. Angels, they're messengers and servants of God. Yet Jesus did not stoop down to the level of an angel. He stooped down to the level of a human being. He went even lower. And he took on the lowest of the low in humanity. He went on the lowest rung in the ladder of humanity. The form of a slave. Any animal lovers here? Anybody love their animals? A couple people, right? A couple people being honest. I think in a room this size, a lot more people love animals, right? One of the plagues of our generation. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? And right, I don't know what kind of animals you love. Some people, they love giraffes, right? The different patterns. Some people love elephants and their size, their magnificence, right? Think of lions. Maybe you're a dog person, a cat person. Anybody here love chihuahuas? A couple, wow, more than the 9 a.m., right? They, they love chihuahuas. They have their chihuahuas. Anybody still have a gerbil in their home? No one? Dribbles are out here. At the night, we had a couple dribble lovers, right? Anybody love mice? Yeah, no, right? Oh, a couple people here, right? You love mice? Okay, at the nine, nobody liked mice whatsoever, right? How about a cockroach? We draw the line there, right? When there's a cockroach in our home, we don't say, ah, there's my pet, right? We, if it's flying, we call, the, we call the real estate agent, right? We sell it. We get rid of it. Flying cockroach, we just want to list it, right? I don't know if anyone has an ant farm. Any ant farms out there, right? Or how about a grub? A grub. And again, to the animal lovers here, how would you speak to an anthill of the oncoming judgment of a water pressure cleaner, right? How would you want to tell them? How would you want to give them freedom to accept you or not and yet warn them of the oncoming judgment? How would you warn a colony of grubs living in the carcass of a possum that an 18-wheeler is coming at 70 miles an hour on the highway is going to crush them to oblivion? How would you warn them? Again, if you'd speak to them as a human, you'd, you'd freak them out, right? You'd blow away the anthill with your voice. You want to give them the freedom to love you or not love you, care for you or not care for you. You'd have to become like them. You'd have to become that ant. You have to become that grub if you really love them, if you really wanted to warn them and give them the freedom to accept you or not. But what kind of an ant would you become? What kind of a grub would you become? Would you become the king of the grubs, right? And you're telling me, hey, we got to start inching our way out of here, right? Would you become the queen of the ants? How about the slave of ants? The servant of all grubs. And that's just a small picture of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. He didn't come into earth as the king of earth. He wasn't born into a throne room. He wasn't even born in a hospital. He had to borrow a barn from a stranger. Again, he came in as the slave of man, a servant to mankind, showing his humility and love for us. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 35, the disciples find themselves in their favorite topic. You know what the disciples' favorite topic was? Themselves, right? It was themselves and how great they were and who was going to be the greatest of them in heaven. And again, it's, it's, it's sort of hilarious. Right? We did this with our teachers. We talked behind them. Maybe still do this behind your parents back, right? But you're with God himself, the one that knows absolutely everything. So they're behind Jesus' back talking and disputing amongst themselves. So Jesus, he asked them, hey, what is it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? They kept silent. They know they were busted, right? For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, he calls the twelve, and he says to them, If anyone desires to be first, 
He shall be last of all and servant of all. In John chapter 13, we, we can turn there. One of the most humiliating instances for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 1. It tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Again, in this culture, as a small child, you would know to never walk into someone's home without washing your feet. Much less to sit down at a meal and not wash your feet. You were raised like that from a small child. right? In a Cuban home, I knew that you have to say hi to any grandparent, any elderly, someone that's older than you. You walk into the home, you have to say, tell them hi, right? If not, they're going to ask you right away, hey, did you, did, you, did you sleep in the same bed as me yesterday, right? You're not going to say hi to me. There's certain things in our culture, right? You don't eat right before you go in the water, right? You can't do that. Bad things happen. There's certain things in our culture. And within this culture, the 12 disciples, since they were small children, knew to never walk into a home without washing your feet. The problem here is that for this meal, they did not hire any slave to wash the feet of the disciples, to not wash the feet of the guests here. And the disciples, with their favorite subject being themselves and how great they were, none of them were willing to humble themselves to the point to wash the feet of their peers, to wash the feet of another disciple, or even to wash the feet of their own Lord. So there it told us, right in verse 1 through 3, Jesus knew that everything was already given into his hands. At this moment, Jesus could have said, okay, guys, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's do this. I'm about to ascend and be back in the glory that I once was. Jesus had done all the work that he needed to do in a sense. He just had to go to the cross and finish that. Everything was given to him. And instead of just putting it in cruise control, instead of just coasting, he gets up from the dinner table. He takes off his poor man clothes, right? He takes off his garments. He takes on a towel. He takes a bowl and he starts to wash each of the disciples' feet. Again, the humility of our Lord and Savior. And a few hours later, what are the disciples arguing about? In Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, once again, they start arguing about who's the greatest of them. Right after Jesus humbled himself and washed their feet, not even two hours later, they begin to argue about who's the greatest among them. In Luke 22, verse 26, Jesus says, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? Yet I am among you 
as the one who serves. This is who Jesus decided to be, the one who serves. He didn't sit at the table and tell the 12 disciples to serve him or fan him or feed him grapes. No, he was the one serving the rest of the disciples. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Again, we know that he was God, and he did not consider a robbery. He gives up his form. He takes on the form of a servant to the Lord. He reveals that form as a servant to all of humanity. But he did. He became a man for us. And what kind of a man did he come into the world as? Did he come in at 12 years old or 13 years old having his bar mitzvah? Did he come in at 21 years old? Did he come in at 30 years old or 33 years old? No, he came as a fetus. He came as a human being that could not even take care of himself or provide for himself. He was at the mercy, in a sense, of Mary and Joseph. He became a, bear, a baby. He had to come through the birth canal. The lips that said, let there be light, had to be taught how to say mama and dada. The fingers which hung the moon and the stars in their place would one day become callous and their fingernails full of dirt. The hands that spread out the heavens had to be taught how to write down his name. The one who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand would one day have nails driven through them for us. Right? We, we sung that song earlier this morning by Sovereign Grace Music. It tells us how low was our Redeemer brought. The Lord the worlds obeyed would stumble as he learned to walk upon the ground he made. The one the angels bowed before would kneel to wash our feet and be at home among the poor, though he owned everything. Again, the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. He became a human. He was hungry like we're hungry, right? Every Sunday at 1215, it's like the hungriest we ever are, right? Throughout the whole week. When is this going to end? we got to get lunch, right? He was thirsty like we're thirsty. He was sleepy like we get sleepy. He was so tired on one occasion that he fell asleep in the boat in the middle of a storm. They had to wake him up. The boat's taking on water and they had to wake him up. He probably even snored, right? He was a human being. He got angry. He got sad. Oftentimes he was grieved and wept. He wore clothes just like us. And again, what kind of a human was he? He came in on the lowest of the low. He didn't come in as a king. He didn't come in as a leader. He didn't come in with authority. Instead, he was born in a borrowed barn. He slept in a borrowed crib. He was born in a tiny, obscure village of Bethlehem. He was raised in a city that was looked down upon. What good can come from Nazareth? He was raised by a lowly teenage mother and a blue-collar carpenter as a father. He worked until he was 30 years old as a carpenter by trade. The Pharisees, they called him an illegitimate son. They called him a bastard. Where did he come from? They called him a glutton. They said that he hung out with loose women for obvious reasons. They called him a demoniac, casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. This is the Son of God. He came in with no riches, though he owned everything. He lived like a vagabond, oftentimes sleeping outside around the Sea of Galilee. In Luke 9, 58, Jesus said to one of the men trying to follow him, he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Even at the end of his life, where was he buried? 
in a borrowed tomb. His family couldn't even afford the tomb. He had to borrow it, right? You know, he gave it back after three days, but he had to borrow it. <laughs> this great quote by St. Augustine of Hippo. Maybe you like hippos. My son Luke, he loves hippos. But St. Augustine of Hippo. It says, The maker of man became man, that the ruler of the stars might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied in the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by a false witness, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline personified, might be scourged with a whip, that he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that he, courage incarnate, might be weak, that he, security itself, might be wounded, that he, life itself, might die. Again, he died. God himself, outside of time, right, cannot die, has no beginning, no end. He was willing to subject himself to death. And there in Philippians 2, verse 8, it says he became obedient. A God does not obey others. A God demands others what to do, and yet he became obedient. Hebrews 5, 8 tells us that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Romans 5, 19 tells us, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Again, this is Jesus. He was obedient to the point of death. And what kind of death? Was he given a last meal? Was he in a comfortable hospital bed? Was he surrounded by his loved ones? No, he had to die the death of the cross. Life itself was humiliated to the point of death, and not just any death. He was given no morphine. He was given no grace. He suffered all for us. Again, the hands that once flung the stars into space were nailed upon a cross. Crucifixion was something that the Romans would not even allow to be practiced upon their own citizens. Their own citizens were not allowed to be crucified, and yet the King of kings and the Lord of lords was willing to be crucified for us taking upon all the wrath for all the sins of the world all at once. Now, why would he do this? Why would he subject himself to so much humiliation, to so much torture? Why would he be willing to be brought so low? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went through all this because he loves you. He went through all this because he loves me. Because he knew of the soon coming judgment of God the Father, the soon coming judgment for our sins, and yet he was willing to give us a way to be reconciled to him. He humbled himself. We could quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 2. There in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews expounds on this truth.
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It tells us, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Again, Jesus humbled himself to die for us. He humbled himself to die for us, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to bring many sons to glory, to the point that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Again, are we ashamed of Jesus Christ here this afternoon? Are we ashamed to come up front for prayer after service? Are we ashamed to pray for our, fru- our food in front of our coworkers or in front of our classmates? Are we ashamed of him? Again, God's word warns us that if we are ashamed of him, if we're not confessing him before men, that he will not confess us before the Father. There's great warning there. And however, if we are willing to confess him before mankind, then he will confess us before God the Father. Jesus humbled himself to die for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He humbled himself to die for us, to save us, that we would be healed by his wounds, that he would pay for our sins. Again, we mentioned it earlier, all sin will be judged. Whether it's judged by the blood of Jesus Christ, we accept his sacrifice and now we live in him. Or if we stick in our pride, then one day we will spend all of eternity in hell having our sins paid for. For all of eternity. Again, Jesus was willing to humble himself to die for us. Now what is he asking us to do? He's asking us to humble ourselves that we may live. You see the trade that's given to us here? He's willing to humble himself to die for us. He's asking us here this morning, this afternoon, hey, Zach, are you willing to humble yourself that you would live? Hey, Zach, are you willing to humble yourself that you'd have life and life abundantly? And that's the same opportunity that Jesus is giving to each and every one of us here this morning. He warned us, he that saves his life will lose it, but he who gives his life for my sake will find it. Verse 9, back in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And 1 Peter 5, 5, we're given a truth, a law within this universe. It tells us God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You see, we're given the opportunity. Romans 6 tells us that if we bury ourselves with him together in this life, one day we'll be raised and exalted with him in the life to come. You see, every knee will bow. It tells us whether in heaven or on earth, 
or under the earth. Every tongue will confess, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. What's the under earth? It's hell itself. You see, friend, it's better to do so now. It's better to humble yourself and claim him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords of your life. To bow the knee to humble yourself and say, Jesus, whatever you have for me, I will follow you. It's better to do that now here on earth because then you'll be able to do that for the rest of heaven. However, if we stay in our pride, if we say this is a joke, this is just religiosity, this is just a fairy tale, one day you will confess him as Lord. One day you will bow the knee, but you'll be bowing the knee for the rest of eternity in hell. Again, better to do so now and have the rest of eternity in heaven, claiming the same promise, bowing the same knee, than spending the rest of eternity in hell having to do it. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's turn to 1 John 4 and we'll close here. What's the whole point of this teaching? What's the whole point of Christmas, right? Was it capitalism that created Christmas, right? To just buy gifts and get rid of gifts and then you got to donate the gifts later on, right? Is that what it's all about? No, it's all about here. We see it in 1 John 4, 17 through 19. And we had a busy week here at the church. We had young adults on Monday. We had a ladies' Christmas dinner on Tuesday. We had service on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we had a funeral here at church. On Friday, again, good news again, we, the youth had a cookie-making competition, right? And uh, we had a busy week. But one thing I continue to see week by week, month by month, year by year, is that only Christians have the power to deal with death itself. You see, everyone has the taste of death. Everyone deals with death, whether you were a kid and you saw your goldfish upside down, right? He said, whoa, he learned a new trick, right? Maybe your parents, they lied to you. They said, look, he's sleeping. They couldn't handle death itself yet either, apparently, right? But each of us, we have to deal with death. Whether it's that small kid with a goldfish, or whether it's a parent that's passed away, a grandparent that's passed away, a best friend that has passed away. And one day, each of us will take that greatest step of faith that every single person for all of eternity, right, except two or three people, have had to take. There in 1 John 4, verse 17 through 19, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Friend, will you have boldness in that day of judgment? Will you have boldness in the greatest step of faith that every single human being has to take? Will you be ready to go to the other side? Saying, I'm ready. Paul says that he was about to go on a cruise. He thought it was all you could eat buffet he was about to go on, right? He says, I'm about to go on a cruise. Is that where we are at or will we be freaking out, plagued with fear, not knowing what to do because we did not bow our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ? I pray that you'd have boldness, not only in the day of death, but in the day of judgment. Each of us will see him face to face. Each of us will fall at our face as dead. But will we hear him say, fear not. Get up, friend. Welcome. Welcome to eternity, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or will we hear, depart from me. I never knew you. 
Again, if you want to hear those words of grace and mercy, Romans told us what to do. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And in a moment, the worship team, the choir, they're going to come up. We're going to close in song. The pastors, they're going to be some in the front here. There's going to be some in the back there. And I encourage you, humble yourself today. Humble yourself today and pray with one of the pastors. If someone invited you, say, hey, man, you know, will, will, will you go with me? Will you pray with me? Will you take me? Can we, can we pray with one of the pastors? And maybe you're a believer here and you've just been in so much pride and you're just convicted that who Jesus was and is, his humiliation. Or perhaps you're here and you don't know if you're going to have boldness in the day of judgment. Again, I encourage you, I plead with you, come up and pray with one of the pastors, whether in the front or whether in the back of the sanctuary. But hey, let's all stand. We'll pray. And then uh, we'll close in some songs. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, for the humiliation you are willing to take because of the love you have for each and every one of us. Lord, we pray that this morning would be the day of salvation, Lord. We pray that this morning we would choose whom we will serve, Lord. Whether it's Satan and himself for the rest of our lives, Lord, or whether we'll have the joy and privilege of being adopted as a son and as a daughter. Again, Lord, work in us, Lord. Help us to let go of our pride. Lord, help us to step into that humility, Lord, to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, we pray you would do that work in us, that some of us this morning, our lives would be spared from hell for all of eternity, and now we'd be able to taste of life and that abundantly. Eternal life, this morning, this afternoon, and for the rest of our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.